0: The first ever televised congressional hearing was on August the 3rd, 1948, a Tuesday. The first witness was a man who said he didn't want to be there. He had been subpoenaed to testify before the House Committee on Un-American Activities, often called HUAC. His name, Whitaker Chambers, an American who had been a communist spy for the Soviet Union in the 1930s we talked with retired Washington-based attorney John Beresford. He has spent years studying and researching the background of Whitaker Chambers and the story and trial of the man Chambers accused of also being a communist spy, Alger Hiss. Mr. Beresford's work can be seen in 38 lectures, amounting to nine hours, on YouTube. John Barrisford You have a series of YouTube vignettes, if you want to call it that, called A Pumpkin Patch, a Typewriter, and Richard Nixon, the Hiss-Chambers Espionage
1: Case. Let's start at the beginning. Why a pumpkin patch? Uh, Probably the most sensational moment or event in this case is when a man named Whitaker Chambers for about 24 hours hides five rolls of camera film uh, which show spy documents he got from people in the State Department and other parts of the government in a pumpkin patch behind his farmhouse in Westminster, Maryland. Uh, He had been subpoenaed to produce them by the House Un-American Activities Committee and he knew that for the next day he was going to be off the property. And he was afraid that um, people supporting his nemesis, Alger Hiss, would come and ransack the house. And he said, I had one foot out the door, and I suddenly realized, I'm going to be gone all day. My wife's going to be gone all day. I've got to hide the stuff somewhere. And I think he knew from reading Edgar Allan Poe's story, he was a very well-read man, the uh, purloined letter, that if you want to hide something, you hide it in an object that's in plain view that no one would ever think of hiding anything in. And he also remembered that... um, He'd seen a movie once, a a communist spy movie, he said, where some communists hid handguns in round statues or papier-mâché statues of Asian gods. And he thought, what do I have that's in plain view, no one would think of hiding anything in, and is round? And he said, I remembered right behind the farmhouse there was a strawberry patch that had been invaded by two vines of pumpkins. And so I went and cut one off right where the two vines came together, a small green pumpkin, took it in the kitchen, hollowed it out like you do in Halloween, and put my stuff in there and put it right back. And then went off to Washington to do my errand. And about, I don't know, 18 hours later, a few minutes before 11, uh, two pairs of headlights come down the long driveway of his 360-acre farm, which is northwest of Maryland, and he gets out and says to the people in the back car who were two guys from the house on american activities committee leave your headlights on and he goes behind the farmhouse and comes back and says we we need more light and they try some flashlights that don't work and then he turned on a light in the back of the house and said come with me and walk behind the house at one point in this process one of the huac staffers turned to the other and said this is like dick tracy and chambers eventually found the right pumpkin and picked it up and said i think this is what you want and they reached in and came out with the five rolls of camera film which became known for decades as the pumpkin papers the next is a typewriter yes. uh... chambers had made a production of documents earlier he had uh, to go over the opening parts very quickly he testified against his will he'd he he did not want this to happen to the house Un-American Activities Committee, that he'd been in the communist underground in the 1930s. He was now the senior editor of Time Magazine, one of the most highly paid journalists in the country, but he'd been in the communist underground and he said one thing he'd done was to run a sort of a secret communist chat group um, that met for a few years in the home of one member and they were all government bureaucrats and two of the so-called alphabet soup agencies that were implementing President Roosevelt's New Deal. And Chambers named seven names, and most of them were well-known kooky lefties by 1948. None of them still worked for the government, but right in the middle of his list, not singled out by him, was a name that stood out like a bottle of champagne and a an ad for malt liquor, and that was Alger Hiss. And there followed a series of spectacular hearings before HUAC in which Hiss and Chambers Told their stories and Hiss at first said I have never been a communist in my life and he said that till the day he died I've just been a boring middle-of-the-road democrat at first he said I have no idea who this guy Chambers is then it turned out that Chambers had an encyclopedic knowledge of the Hiss family's daily life in the mid 1930s and then has changed his story and said well he was our deadbeat subtenant for a while Um, and then Hiss uh, ended the hearings with uh, with his credibility badly damaged uh, but everybody thinking, hey, he was just in this chat group, big deal, there was no spying, so what? He did something stupid 15 years ago when he was young and naive, he's not the first one to do that. And right now he's just trying to hold on to his job. He was the head of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which is one of these very big, high-toned think tanks. And his sued Chambers for libel, uh, huge tactical or huge error on his part. He made the same mistake that Oscar Wilde made. Um, And uh, in the the pre-trial interview called A a Deposition, Hiss's lawyer, William Marbury of Piper and Marbury, um, gave Chambers a request for the production of documents. And he demanded, and I think these are his exact words, everything you have that is in the handwriting of Alger or Priscilla Hiss, and, or any other writings of Alger or Priscilla Hiss. I should have said earlier uh, that Chambers also said that he and the Hisses had become very good friends in violation of every rule of the communist underground. And his, uh, Chambers remembered that when he bugged out of the underground, he had given, he'd kept the last batch of documents that his sources had given him in a spy ring, which he had not mentioned to Hueck or to a grand jury that had summoned him. And he went uh, with a, a remote relative of his who was a Brooklyn lawyer to whom he'd given this pile of documents in an envelope in 1938 and they fetched it off the top of a dumbwaiter shaft and the next day Chambers was continuing his deposition with Mr. Marbury. He said I would like to, I have some documents to produce and I'm sure Mr. Marbury's heart stopped at that moment and uh, Chambers said uh, now I've got to tell the whole story. Mr. Hiss, were I a, Mr. Hiss and I were in a spy ring in 1937 and in the first three months of 1938 and um the way it worked was he and a uh, would uh, there were some papers he could not take out of the building of the State Department where his was then, and he would write them out in little pieces of notepaper with the small office he worked in. And when he was on the nights I was not coming by, which was most nights, he would take papers home and his wife would type the copies of them up on the family typewriter. And on the nights I was coming by, he'd take home papers and would give me the handwritten and typewritten notes that had piled up since the last visit, and whatever he had taken out that day, I'd take them off and have them photographed. This would be at about 6 p.m. I'd get them. I'd bring them back at about 10 or 2 in the morning, depending on how much time the photography would taken. And uh, Chambers said, I kept the last batch of documents that Mr. Hiss gave me, and here they are. And he produced four notes in Alger Hiss's handwriting and 65 pages of typewritten documents all dated from the first three months in 1938, except one or two. Um, And uh, as a lawyer who's taken some depositions, I always wondered for years what was going through Mr. Marbury's mind as Chambers was saying this, and I found he left us a memoir. And he said, uh, I saw the documents in Alger's handwriting. We had been friends since we were children. I recognized it immediately, and I said to myself, this case is over. And then I realized, holy hell, this is not just about whether Alger Hiss was in some little chat group. This is now spy stuff. We're talking espionage, major crimes. Uh, And two days later, the Justice Department came crashing into the case and the whole thing moved into the federal criminal courts. But a search began immediately, of course, for the typewriter the Hisses had had and kept at home. And um, eventually, a typewriter was found, which almost everybody now agrees was the Hiss Home typewriter. It had passed through four or five hands after the Hisses. It was found in the possession of a, a fellow named Ira Locke, uh, who was a junk dealer, uh, would help you move, and was a night watchman. I think all these people are black people. Um, he, uh, and uh, it was found by Hiss's lawyer, Edward McLean, of Debevoise, Plimpton & McLean, a very distinguished New York white shoe Wall Street law firm. Um, and um, uh, the thing that... Uh, and Hiss and Chambers were summoned eventually before a grand jury. They both told their stories. Um, and the, uh, what I think sealed Hiss's doom before the grand jury and both juries at the trials was that an FBI document expert um, before the typewriter had been found said we have something just as good and that's four letters that we know were typed on the Hiss home typewriter. The Hisses gave us one, we found others in places they'd done business with and he said the two sets of documents were typed on the same kind of typewriter a 1929 Woodstock office model except one that everybody threw away so we're down to 64 And he said, in each of the sets of documents, in certain 10 letters, I can see identical little nicks and scratches and imperfections that couldn't be made by any human being, that are just like all the nicks and scratches and spots that appear in your car over 10 years of use. And if you find that many identical peculiarities of type, you can be sure that the two sets of documents were typed on the same typewriter. And since we know what we call the Hiss standards were typed on the Hiss home typewriter, the spy documents were typed on the Hiss home typewriter. Now, at the tri- the typewriter was found, uh, although 26 FBI agents had been looking for it, they hadn't found it because the hisses gave them some bum steers. Hiss's lawyer found it, and it was introduced at the trials as the Hiss typewriter. And Hiss and his wife and I think five other witnesses who had been in the Hiss house pointed to it and said, that's it. And Hiss's story at the trial was when he's asked, how do 65 pages of spy documents get typed in your home typewriter and you're still innocent? And, in, um, and Hiss uh, said, well, um, just before the first document was typed, we gave the typewriter away to two black teenagers in our neighborhood who were the sons of our cleaning woman who did odd jobs for you. They'd mow your lawn and wash your windows, and they helped us move. And we gave them the typewriter in connection with the move. And Chambers must have broken into, must have found out the typewriter was there, broken into their house, and typed up the documents, planning to frame me ten years later. And there was a lot of testimony at the trials about what was going on. And the the two kids were named Catlett, Raymond, Sylvester, and Perry. I think their names were. They had the typewriter most of the time in a back room in their house, which was 2728 P Street in Georgetown. And you can get in there and it's, it's, it's in the basement if you're on P Street, but the land slopes down and there's a back door you can enter. And in this room where they had the typewriter, they had a kind of nonstop dance party going on for the black teenagers in the neighborhood. And you have to believe that Chambers, who's this big, fat white man, um joins the dance party, and as the conga line snakes past the typewriter, he does a little typing, and uh, in his closing address in the second jury, the second trial, Prosecutor Murphy had a great deal of fun and said, and now we see Chambers sneaking in, and he mingles, he mingles, and he dances, he types, he dances, he types, holding the real State Department documents in one hand and typing with the other and dancing all the time. And then he said, oh, Mr. Hiss, you've got to do better than that. Now, after he was found guilty, Hiss said, that typewriter was a fake. It's a typewriter that was manufactured to look, to be, to to type, just like my typewriter. And some genius with a teeny-weeny hammer and chisel had some documents typed on my typewriter, or had the typewriter itself, and introduced into their fake the same little nicks and scratches. Um, His hired three experts to get them to do this, and they worked at it for more than a year and couldn't. But he dined out on the forgery by typewriter theory, um, originally for the rest of his life. And he originally said that Chambers did it all by himself, which is crazy because Chambers didn't have the time or the talents to do it. And later on he alleged some huge conspiracy by the FBI and that sort of thing. So that's, that's the story of the typewriter. Maybe the important thing to say about the typewriter is that the evidence that convicted Hiss was the comparison of the two sets of documents, not the typewriter. And the, the evidence that convicted Hiss would have been exactly the same if no typewriter had ever been found. Again, <clears throat> the title of this series is A Pumpkin Patch, A Typewriter,
0: and Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. What is about what is it about Richard Nixon? That you, why did you put him in well, the title? Well, you
1: see him at the beginning of his career. Chambers is subpoenaed at the last minute by Hueck. He had less than... 24 hours' notice he was going to testify. He testified about this chat group um, and uh, big headlines all over the country. Uh, Hiss had been the founding secretary general of the UN. It was a tabloid newspaper in Washington called the Daily News, and their front page the next day said, UN founder of Red, probe told here. And um, almost alone among the people chambers named, Alger Hiss asked for time to deny the charges, and they gave him time the next day. And there he was, and he said, I am not and never have been a member of the Communist Party. I've never had a communist thought in my life. To the best of my knowledge, the only uh, time in my life I've ever spoken with a communist is when it was part of my job in the State Department to talk to diplomats from communist countries. And as to this guy Chambers, who says we were friends for four years, uh, two years ago the FBI asked me if I knew him, and I said I didn't know Mr. Chambers, and as far as I know, I've never laid eyes on him. Um, I say as far as I know, I don't remember everyone I've met for the last 13 years I've been in public life, but I I do deny totally that he and I were ever friends and he ever came to my house and we took trips together or anything like that. Um, And he was so calm and so quiet, and he didn't have a lawyer sitting next to him, he didn't take the Fifth Amendment, um, he won over HUAC. And they thanked him for coming forward and told him what a good witness he'd made. There was a staffer named Robert Stripling who found a picture of Chambers and handed it to Hiss and said, Are you saying you've never seen this before, this this man? And Hiss looked at the picture and handed it back to him and said, The name means absolutely nothing to me. Uh, And he went away with everybody laughing at Stripling, and um, after the hearing was over, people crowded around his, shook his hand, and word spread around the capitol building, someone has finally shown up, HUAC, for what it is. And HUAC met after lunch in a state of shock, and everybody was blaming Stripling, you always blame the staff when everything goes wrong, and um, he said, I don't want to give up on this, we should press forward, and they were about to drop the whole thing, and hope everybody forgot about it, when up spoke a freshman member of the committee, and that was Richard Nixon who I think had played a very small role in the committee up until now. He had won a seat in the Republican landslide of 1946 from a district that normally voted Democrat, uh, but 46 had been a great year for the Republican Party, and his Plum Committee assignment was education and labor, and I think he was planning to get ahead there, do it the company way, maybe in 10 years I'll be a subcommittee chairman sort of thing. But he saw, he I'm sure was put off by Hiss's haughtiness, Hiss reeked Harvard's superiority and Nixon, of course, was quite the opposite, always trying to work very hard to get ahead and never one of the beautiful people. Um, I think he formed a bond with Chambers on that ground. Anyway, Nixon spoke up and said, I think Strip's right and if you guys don't want to go ahead with this, I do. Name a subcommittee and I'll take it off your hands. And they quickly voted to grant his wish and as they were running out the door as fast as they could, they paused for a moment and said, Dick, what do you see here?" And he said a couple of things. He said, number one, I don't see what Chambers' motive to lie is. He didn't want to testify to us. We had to subpoena him. And Jiminy Christmas, this guy's the senior editor of Time Magazine, He has, if if he wants to slime Hiss, he has access to an audience of credulous millions every week. No motive to lie. Number two, I was listening to Hiss's testimony very carefully, and he never really denied knowing Chambers. And they all said, what do you mean? He said, I don't know Whitaker Chambers. And Nixon said, that's the point. We all know that bosses in the communist underground go around under false names. So to say a hundred different ways I've never known Whitaker Chambers is not to deny his charges. There's something a little sneaky about everything he said. And I'm sure at that point Stripling chimed in and said, that's what I was getting at when I showed him the picture and asked him, are you saying you've never seen this man? And his answer was, the name means absolutely nothing to me, which is not an answer to the question. And finally, Nixon said, um, the other reason I'm not willing to write off Chambers is that he's given us the way to prove that he's lying. And he says the Hisses and he were good friends. And Hiss denies that, and that's a second disagreement between the two people. We'll never be able to prove Hiss was a communist. When, when you join the communist underground, you don't call a press conference, but um, whether they knew each other, we can figure that out. And 36 hours later, in complete secrecy, on a Saturday morning, they got Chambers under oath and stripling, where Nixon asked him, you say you knew these people, the Hisses?" He said, yes. You say you've been in their house? Yes. Well, let's start at the front door. Does it have a bell or a knocker? And for two and a half hours, Chambers just poured forth details about the Hiss family's life, their bird-watching hobby and a certain rare bird they'd seen and something funny about the windshield wipers in one of the cars they had. And Nixon playing a very plotting prosecutor, uh, building a case the two men knew each other. And then they got Hiss under oath a second time, and he's very haughty with them and saying, I can't believe you're even thinking of taking the word of this dreadful man, Chambers. He's a communist. He's a traitor. His sounding like Senator McCarthy at this point. Um, and uh, Stripling said, i got to tell you, Mr. Yes, Mr. Chambers just sat there for hours and rattled off details about your life, and, or what he said were details, and either the two of you knew each other or he has made the most amazing study of your life. And then his changed his story and said, well, there was this guy, who came to see me and wanted an interview and one he said he was a freelance journalist named George Crosley. I remember he had very bad teeth and which Chambers had in the 1920s or 30s rather and uh, dressed very poorly which Chambers did Um, And one thing led to another. He became our subtenant, briefly lived under the same roof with us, was full of weird tales. You didn't know if they were true. He claimed to have laid the trolley car tracks of Washington, D.C. with his bare hands. And the guy turned out to be a deadbeat, and eventually we just got him out of our lives. And uh, that's why I've said from the very... It's just possible that this man with bad teeth, who briefly infested our lives ten years ago under the name George Crosley has become under the name Whitaker Chambers, the senior editor of the nation's preeminent weekly news magazine, and he's the guy who's going around Washington telling these absurd stories about me and my wife for for reasons that you probably need to be a psychiatrist to understand. And that's why I've said from the very beginning that I would like to see Mr. Chambers. And Nixon said, we'll have a public hearing in nine days at which you'll both be present. And then Nixon, in another tactical masterstroke, doing this without telling anybody else on the committee. Uh, He is now using this to sort of blast loose from the orbit of HUAC and become, the. he hopes, if this all works, the most famous first-term member of the lower house in the country's history. Um, And he uh, told Stripling, I want you to bring Hiss and Chambers together face-to-face tomorrow. Complete surprise to both of them and Stripling arranged to bring the two men together in a hotel room in New York, which despite this confidential locale is a formal hearing of Nixon's subcommittee and there's a transcript and it's surreal. Hiss walks around Chambers and looks at him from different angles and bends over and makes finger gestures to him to open his mouth and at one point Hiss demands to see Chambers, to talk to Chambers' dentist Um, and eventually he says, yes this is the man I knew as George Crosley. Uh, And Nixon rushes into the press and says, Mr. Hiss has completely changed his story from 10 days ago, and he identifies himself as the competent, plodding pursuer of the truth, tracking down justice, uncovering treason that was going on for years under the Democrats. Um, And uh, then came the great public hearing in eight days, in which Nixon did most of the questioning, and Hiss has become extravagantly cautious in all of his answers. Everything now is to the best of my recollection. He said that phrase about 191 times. And this was really Nixon's time to shine. And he, uh, the other problem that his had was that evidence had begun trickling in from all over that he and Chambers had engaged in a number of commercial transactions. Uh, His said, we had a brief unpleasant business relationship tenant and subtenant in 34 and 35 it was over by the middle of 35 Chambers says we were close friends from 34 through 38 and evidence had begun trickling in that the two men had been involved in the purchase and sale of two cars that Chambers had given Hiss a valuable oriental carpet um, at the same time he gave three other carpets to three other of his people in the in the communist spy ring and uh, the two men had also been interested in the same very obscure parcel of land miles away from where either of them worked. And at uh, the other problem, and these were the tokens of the kind of close friendship that Chambers alleged and Hiss denied, and the other problem for Hiss was that all these records were dated 1935, 1936, and 1937, after Hiss said, I got this deadbeat Crosley out of my life. And th- what came out at the hearings especially was the car, and his said there was this old car we had that uh, was a Ford left over from the 20s, the one with the funny windshield wipers, and we just gave it to Crosley because it was of no resale value. First he said, we sold it. Then they asked him, how much did you get for it? And we didn't get it, we we just gave it to him. Oh, so you gave it to him? Yes. Uh, Have you ever given away a car? I don't know, sounds a little strange. In the Great Depression, when you. Supporting a family of three, on the salary, even entry-level government lawyer. Um, and his said, "Well, maybe I just loaned him the car." And Nixon said, "Mr. Hiss, I ask you a simple question, let's have a simple answer. Did you or did you not give Crosley a car?" And his said, "To the best of my recollection, And Nixon said, "Mr. Hiss, I'm sorry to cut you off. but are we getting a little silly with this to the best of my recollection? How many times in your life have you given away a car?" And surely you could remember if you'd done that. That was the first but not the last time that Nixon, um, that the audience laughed at his. And then he said, well, maybe I should say that I gave him the use of the car. And everybody went, oh, you know, here's another shade of meaning. And um, Nixon became quite famous. And then uh, then the lawsuit happened and Chambers produced the typed and handwritten documents uh, and the Justice Department came into the case and got the judge to impose a gag order and a freeze on proceedings. Um, and Chambers figured, well, tomorrow, now that I've proved there's aspiring, tomorrow the FBI will come and see me. 12 days later, nothing. And uh, I figure there are about 10 people who knew that Chambers had produced the handwritten and typewritten documents at the deposition. And uh, uh, how many people can keep a secret that big for how long. And on December 1st, the first story began appearing in newspapers saying that something big's happened in the Hiss Chamber's libel suit that shows who's telling the truth. And Stripling also got word from a private detective that uh, something bad had happened to Hiss. And he rushed up to see Nixon and said, boss, put two and two together, Chambers has produced proof that Hiss was a communist. Nixon's first reaction, quite understandably, was to say, That SOB, he had the goods on his the whole time and was holding, and he didn't share them with me. I saved him. I risked my career for him. And Stripling says, Calm down, boss. That's spilt milk. Let's go out and see Chambers, find out what's going on. And Chambers said, I I can't tell you because there's a gag order. Uh, And Nixon or Stripling, they each claim always to have, you know, I'm the guy who did the smart thinking and talking, and they drop a footnote. The other fellow was very helpful as well, but one of them said, oh, so uh, perhaps with a wink and a nod, you mean if you had produced proof that Hiss was a communist, you couldn't tell us? And Chambers went something like, well, yes, with a wink and a smile. And then one of them asked the $64,000 question, which is, do you have anything else, something that's not covered by the court order that you can tell us about and give us? And Chambers said yes, Uh, and he was referring to the pumpkin papers. And um, the next day, as Chambers is going out the farmhouse and thinking of the pumpkin, uh, Nixon was going up to New York to depart on a Caribbean cruise with Pat, their first vacation in three years. I guess if he, if it turns out to be something great, I can stage a dramatic return, and if there's nothing, or it turns out to be a a damp firecracker, I'm far from the scene of the accident, and I get to save my marriage. Um, And uh, a few days later, he was having dinner at the captain's table, and he got a telegram from Stripling saying, startling new evidence, you must return soonest, you know, quick. And I believe he got some sort of a battleship to come up alongside the cruise ship, and they rigged up something called a breeches buoy, which is a canvas sack that is pulled from one boat to the other. And Nixon <laughs> climbed into the sack and was pulled um, and came back to Washington with all the, with, in a series of ever-larger airplanes and boats. Um, nothing else was going on. This is early December Uh, And uh, this was front-page news all over the place, and there were pictures of him getting off of biplanes. And uh, at one point, uh, some journalist said to him, Congressman, are you gonna make public the pumpkin papers? And Nixon said, what? And when he heard what Chambers had done, he thought, my God, (laughs) good old wit. Nothing's ever simple with him. Uh, And he came back to Washington for the press conference of his life, I must add one further twist. Just before they began the press conference, which was going to be the press, you know, vindication beyond his wildest dreams, um, Stripling called up Kodak, and they told him, and he gave them the serial numbers off the films that Chambers had produced, and Kodak told him that the film was made in 1945, which meant, of course, it can't have taken pictures in 1938. And when Stripling told Nixon this bad news, Nixon either imploded or exploded, depending on what version you read. There were a few people in the room. And he was about to go out to the press conference and say, this has all been a big mistake. I was wrong. We've all been wrong. When the phone rang and Kodak said, turns out we used the same serial numbers in two years. We never did this before, but they're 1945 and 1937. And Stripling put down the phone and let out a rebel yell, and depending on which account you read, he and Nixon spent the next five minutes either dancing around the room with each other, or jumping up and down and saying, whoopee, or just sobbing on each other's shoulders. And everybody in America who went to the movies, and most people went to the movies twice a week, saw a newsreel of Nixon holding up the films They were the, and the pictures of the pumpkin on the ground. And so he became... The most famous first-term congressman in the country's history, um, he had become, in the election of 1948, he'd become so popular in his district that he was nominated for re-election by the Republican Party and by the Democratic Party, too. Um, and he ran for the Senate two years later and won that, and two years after that he was vice president. Um, and that's how he became famous. And he was, he said to somebody years later, my plum committee assignment was education and labor, and then came the Hiss case, and that's when I took on the power structure, and they never forgave me for that. So, so, <clears throat> you clearly know <laughs> a lot
0: about the Hiss Chamber's espionage case, mm-hmm. and I must say the reason I asked you to talk to us on this podcast was because I inadvertently Found your thirty eight part series on mm-hmm. YouTube, looking around for history, and it just intrigued me, and I watched all nine hours i can't it may not be exactly nine hours, but I totaled it up and I wanted to ask you not only about the substance, but about why you did this where did Where did this all start for you? and let's also assume that anybody listening to this can watch your series free of charge on YouTube.
1: yes. The, your your search request would be john space Beresford, john space Beresford one John space Beresford two and so on through thirty eight and it's on the uh, it it the podcaster on all the major platforms apple spotify, and stitcher um, how did I get it into- i I uh, had a feeling you were going to ask me that question it goes way back i was um i I was bad at math. And in the high school I went to, you could get out of taking math if you took three foreign languages. And I was already taking Latin and French, and the school I was at had a very good Russian program, so I took Russian. And um, uh, fell in, I, I'd, I'd always liked the music of Tchaikovsky, and Russia was the great Satan back in those days. Um, and uh, I majored in Russian in college, went to Washington U and St. Louis. And my professors were mainly native speakers who'd gotten the hell out, or people who'd been students at the University of Moscow in the late 50s and early 60s, and they gave me an earful of stories about the real hell that life in the Soviet Union, what communism really is in real life on the ground. And I eventually got to read Dostoevsky in Russian, and uh, somebody who knew Chambers said that he was the only U.S. citizen he ever knew who could have been a character in a Dostoevsky novel. Um, And so I I became a great enemy of communism. My family were sort of liberal Republicans of the Tom Dewey, Nelson Rockefeller variety. Um, And this was the height of the Vietnam War, and I wanted to beat the communists. I was never assured that Vietnam was the right time or the right place, but I was amazed at how some of my fellow students idolized Mao Tse Tung, thought he was Thomas Jefferson with chopsticks, and I had a roommate in college who was a poetry major who said that Ho Chi Minh was better than Nixon because he wrote poetry. And then I found out from my professors that some people of their vintage had idolized Stalin back in the 30s, and one of my professors once said to us, we had a saying in the 30s, there are no enemies on the left, and he shook his head and said, boy, did we get that one wrong. Um, and then once, just by accident, I picked off the shelf in the library, uh, I saw the name Alistair Cook, who I knew as the Masterpiece Theater host, and uh, he, it was his book about the trials. He'd covered the trials for the Manchester Guardian and he writes about every courtroom scene with a delicacy of Henry Adams, uh, pardon me, Henry James, um, beautiful little portraits of all the witnesses uh, and that got me interested in the case. I was. Uh, my family has a lot of lawyers and I grew up on Perry Mason. This was I think the trial of the century. There were two trials. His was found guilty at the second one. First one had a hung jury And in each trial, both the prosecution and the defense followed a different strategy. There were superb lawyers on both sides, so it's a fascinating study in how to do a a very difficult case in which each side has great strengths and great weaknesses. So I got interested in the trials, and then one day I was talking to a, a minor grand dame of Park Avenue, whose children were registered for Harvard or Radcliffe at birth. And I mentioned my interest in the case, and she said, oh, we sat through both trials. And I said, really? And she said, yes, my husband knew some judges on the court, and we got tickets. And this woman, who was as Republican as you could get, said, and of course, we were all rooting for his. And I said, well, you know, sometimes I think he might be the one who was lying, and I'll never forget this great battleship of a woman turned to me and said, Chambers was the real scoundrel for telling tales that are better left untold. And this woman had a physical, rev- sort of, you know, Alger and my boys went to Harvard, and laws are for little people. And this woman had a physical revulsion to Chambers. She said Chambers looked like he crawled out from under a rock. And if you ever found yourself standing next to him in the courthouse elevator, you just wanted to move away, because you were afraid something was going to jump off of him and onto you. Um, and then it turned out that my family had a number of, sort of, f- several degrees of separation from the Hiss defense. A friend of my family's was the lawyer who introduced Hiss to the psychiatrist who testified at the second trial that Chambers was a psychopathic liar and who was torn to shreds on cross-examination, by the way. I dated a girl whose parents knew the Hisses. I remember she said to me one night, this nice man came to dinner the other day, and I thought, Soviet spy, I can't believe it. Um, and then there was another little tie-in. I, uh, uh, By the way, what years it, were these? They, they were, we're now in the late 60s to the mid-70s. And you are doing what then? I was a student in high school and then Washington U. and St. Louis and then law school. And where was your hometown? New York City, Upper East Side, Man, Man, Manhattan.
0: And what had your parents done?
1: Uh, my father, who died in 1954, where he was a labor lawyer. My first stepfather was an investment counselor. He was the man in the house when all this happened. Uh, My mother was a remedial reading teacher and she married a third time late in her life to a Wall Street lawyer and oil prospector.
0: Why did you go to Washington University in St. Louis?
1: Well, it's funny, I was uh, heartbroken not to get into Harvard or Yale um, and uh, where members of my family had gone and I went to Wash U because they took me and I didn't um, I was taken in by Penn, but I didn't like Philadelphia. And uh, looking back on it, leaving New York was the best thing I've done in my life because uh, no one is as provincial as someone who spent their their whole life there. Um, and uh, I stay. I spent my senior year in college at the University of East Anglia in Norfolk, in England. Then went back to WashU for the law school.
0: And when did you start to really dig in to the Hiss Chamber case? Which, by the way, these. If I have the the, the time right, you did these YouTube
1: videos in 2014. That makes sense, shortly after I retired, yes, yes. I had, I wrote my, uh, I I bought every book that I could find about the case. There were, I think, 25 books about the case have been published. Um, And also, everybody who was alive at the time had an opinion about the case. And this case was the overture to the McCarthy era. There, people have been saying there are commies in the government, spies, traitors for decades. But hiss's conviction gave them a credibility they had lacked, and it was a really shaming event for many liberals, especially the ones who'd sort of thought, well, the communists are just sort of our vulgar country cousins. They don't have our panache and our suavete, but at the end of the day, they're still family. And they had to wake up and realize that there were monsters on the left as well as on the right. Um, And generally speaking, the people like this Grand Dame that I mentioned, the people who were well-born, even if they went to Harvard and they were Republican, if you read The New Yorker and you knew how to order a bottle of wine, you tended to identify with Hiss. Um, and uh, they all got it wrong too. And I think one reason they never forgave Nixon, or they never liked him with his cheap suits and five o'clock shadow, was that he had proved that he was smarter than they were. When did you
0: decide, and why did you decide to do the YouTube series?
1: Well, I'd had I'd published some scholarly articles on the case. I'd given two day long presentations up, about it in 1988 and 98 at the Smithsonian associates and so I had this long text and I decided I wanted to um, make some permanent record of it and I was retired and I uh, knocked on the door of the uh, Arlington County cable television community access channel and uh, convinced those very fine people that I wasn't some nut or some right-wing nut or left-wing nut and and I said do you have a studio and I'll pay you to tape record or to make a record of my stuff. And I had charts and a pumpkin and all sorts of props. I found a, 1929, a 1927 Woodstock office model on, on eBay one day. Um, and they said, we have two open days next week. Let's do it all in two days. Let's come here at 8 and we'll just start taping. And two days later, I was a limp dishrag, but it was done. And we did that.
0: What I saw was you standing in front of a podium with a blue background. mm mm-hmm and these 38 different episodes were different lengths. They were from eight minutes, four minutes, to 15, 20, 22 minutes. Did you do this all just standing at that podium one after another? Yes, yes. And when did you realize you could put this on YouTube, and did that cost you any money?
1: That did, I paid Arlington Community that public access channel uh, a couple of thousand dollars, which I was happy to pay for them. They were great. They took me seriously. They did a great job. Um, And uh, uh, YouTube cost me, uh, they put it up there. It it didn't cost me anything. I don't think it cost anything to put something on YouTube. But maybe I could be wrong on that. Do you get anything from the advertising around your nothing? So you're
0: done with it? It's going to sit there on YouTube forever?
1: Yes. And then podcasts came along. And I thought, why don't I do that too? Read I, no- some- I notice that when you get on your LinkedIn page, you go to the
0: podcast. But what I'm getting is 33, 34 seconds of material. Is that just to tease me for the rest of it?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And so, where do you, where can you find? It ju- I assume without video, just the podcast.
1: Okay. If you go to that, which is called the audiogram, in the middle of it, there is a cita- There is a, a, a URL. You know, HTTP slash slash uh, for something called um, oh, uh, Liberated Syndication, Lib, LibSyn, uh, and you click on that and the longer video comes up, or the, the longer podcast comes up. Uh, or you can go to any of the major or all of the uh, podcast platforms. It's listed under True Crime. And it's a pump, a pumpkin patch, a typewriter, and Richard Nixon. And that all that hard work was done by a wonderful producer named Mark Mac- MacDonald, whom I've never met but have uh, talked with quite a lot. And we did all of the taping in two or three days. What else ha- have you done to prepare for this?
0: In other words, have you gone to the Lindbrook uh, Long Island home? Have you gone to the farm in Westminster, all that kind of thing? I have...
1: Been to and looked from the outside at all the houses the hisses lived in in Georgetown. I've also looked in the back of the Catlett Kids house, twenty-seven, twenty-eight P Street, um, of which I found some pictures dating from the nineteen thirties too. Uh, Lynbrook, where he was born, where Chambers was born, is now totally suburban, and I'm sure there's nothing left there. Um, I have not been in Brooklyn to, uh, I think it's 260 Rochester Avenue, which was the address where the envelope was stashed on top of a linen closet that had been a dumbwaiter shaft for for ten years. I'd be interested to know if uh, that building is is still there. Um, I have not been to the Chambers' farm. The Chambers' children have not sought any publicity about this at all and um, they'd have no reason to let me onto the place and I believe also the farmhouse they lived in um, was burned to the ground in the 50's Um, at Chambers death in 1961 the land was subdivided into three parcels uh, for two children and one for his widow and I think where the famous pumpkin was is now someone's driveway and the smaller house that was on the property, where he wrote his great book, Witness, um, was burned to the ground a few years ago. So there's, in, in terms of old stuff, there's really nothing to uh, see there. What year did you read Witness? I think I read Witness in, when I was in college. I, I had s- subscribed to the National Review, and as, as a come on for that, they sent me a book of Chambers correspondence with Bill Buckley. Which sort of opened Chambers to me, and then I I read Witness probably in 1970 or so. It's a, a, Chambers in the full fugue mode with all the stops coming out, and it's um, uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., the liberal historian and the court historian of the Kennedy White House, give the lead review of it in. Uh, Uh, the Saturday Review of Literature, and he said, uh, although I disagree with Mr. Chambers' politics completely, this is one of the great autobiographies ever written in this country. And he said, um, the story of his childhood, an extremely unhappy childhood, monumentally dysfunctional family, and his had the same kind of a family, by the way. Uh, He said it uh, is heartbreaking, what he went through as a child. And then he said... Schlesinger said Chambers' story of his life as a communist in the open party and then in the underground they had him doing odd jobs in New York for two years and then he had the chat group and then it was the spy ring and then he tries to extricate himself, all that. Schlesinger said, that makes me think of Dante's in, in, Inferno. Uh, and he said, uh, I have no doubt Chambers is telling the truth. I believe he's a man of magnificent courage, both moral and physical, and when some future Plutarch writes his lives of notable Americans, the life of Whitaker Chambers will be one of them.
0: In the middle of watching your 38 episodes, you mention, I don't remember which one, the letter, I believe it was a letter, tell me if I'm wrong, that that Chambers wrote about his homosexuality. Yes. I haven't, I I got online and couldn't find it anywhere, and I wondered how you found that.
1: I, um... It was first revealed when uh, the FBI made a lot of Freedom of Information Act documents available after a lawsuit by the ACLU in, I think, 1976, and it, uh, Hiss used those papers from the FBI to mount his last run at the Court of Appeals, his, his last run of the courts, Claiming that there were some things that he should have known about, that they should have told him about, that they didn't tell him about, so therefore he didn't get a fair trial. This has nothing to do with whether he spied for the Soviet Union. And he filed a pleading he called a petition for quorum nobis, which is what you file to get an old case overturned. And the papers he filed were published in two books, each about an inch thick. Uh, which I found copies of in the Strand bookstore in New York one day um, and you can i 'm sure there are copies on eBay or Amazon old books um, and uh, back when I got interested in this case, there were some old book services you could write away to and they 'd send you a postcard in two months and now you can go online and there are old book services and you can find stuff quickly and a tiny price it 's really great um, but in the in his In those books, they reproduce Chambers' letter.
0: And I brought it up for a reason, because it goes into some detail. Explain what he says in this
1: letter. Um, Stripling said that from the first day it was whispered around the hearing room that Chambers was a queer, and that's Stripling's word, not mine. I happen to be gay myself. Um, And he said it was the standard operating procedure for communists. Whenever an ex-communist came forward, you'd hear... Uh, alcoholic or drug addict been to see a psychiatrist which in the 1940s is whoa, and sex pervert um, and um, Chambers, Hiss begins dropping hints early on he said uh, Mr. Chambers I, I think you will find that his life is not like those of normal men an open book um, and, in fact, George Crosley was a name that Chambers had used. It, he had used it as a pen name to submit poetry for publication in the 1920s, poetry that was pornographic, and if you read between the lines, is homosexual. You have to read between the lines to see it. Uh, anyway, at one point he was talking, he, he's at the point where, now where they're preparing for the trial, and the FBI is totally cooperating with him, and he's spilling his guts out to them every day. And one day, at the end of their interview, he handed them a letter and said, "You should read this." And he left the room. And the letter says something like, "We've come to a point in my story where I should tell. Well, I, I have to tell you something that was that should only be told to a priest. Um, I my friendships with men early on were a little too intense, but they were totally healthy. Uh, my relations with women took a long time to develop, but they were normal. And then in 1930, I did not know what." Homosexualism meant, Chambers writes, until 1933 or 34, uh, I was walking a street in New York and a young man asked me to buy him a a meal and he told me about his life as a coal miner's son and I was footloose and fancy free so we checked into a hotel and there he taught me an experience that I did not know had occurred or could, could occur and it was all the more intense because it had been pent up for so long in me and thereafter uh, I regularly sought out homosexual sex in New York and Washington. Um, I never went to places where those kinds of people congregate. I never, ever would have had gay sex with anyone in the communist movement. Um, And I've certainly never had the thought of anything like that with Alger Hiss. And some years ago I was able to conquer this urge. This is not to say that I don't feel it from time to time, but I have conquered it, and I've kept my secret jealously, but now in this case, and here's Chairman getting very melodramatic, um, I must tell the truth even if it will destroy my life, uh, because having tried to destroy, as I'm now trying to destroy Mr. Hiss by telling the truth, I must tell the truth about my, myself. When you were doing your research, when did you
0: have uh, the feeling that, wow, I did not know this? I found something unique, not just this letter, but other mm-hmm. things. <clears throat> and have you kept everything
1: that you, out of your research, in one place? I have all of the books, which fill about five or six shelves. I spent a considerable sum of money on all the transcripts of the HUAC hearings um, and the Chambers depositions in the lawsuit and the grand jury proceedings. I had a small but honorable role in the lawsuit that made them public. And I paid a lot of money for the transcripts of both trials and Hiss's forgery by typewriter petition. I did have a box of pictures, which I threw away a few years ago when I thought, well, I've done a YouTube video, so it's all over. I could reconstruct them. I I got them all from eBay, Um, a lot of old life magazines and Time magazines from the time. and uh, so I've kept most of it, uh, probably ninety percent of everything.
0: W- what was, what were the oh, moments uh, the, that the, you the, were the most surprised by?
1: The aha moments. Uh, the one about Chambers being gay. Um, I was. I loved Mr. Marbury's memoir, which he published in the University of Maryland Law Review. I think in he 19- was who was he again? Uh, William Marbury, who was the. Uh, childhood friend of hiss's, law school classmate of his, um, and uh, among all the lawyers who were volunteering to be his lawyer for free when he sued Chambers, um, Marbury won the contest and he was to be the guy who did the stand-up in court talking and Edward McLean up in New York was the guy who'd do the back office preparation. And Marbury uh, took the Chambers's depositions. Um, it's fascinating because Chambers, uh, well, it one little priceless moment. At one point, um, they're asking, Mrs. Chambers, you, you see the snobbery here. Um, Marbury is talking to, is questioning Mrs. Chambers, and Mrs. Chambers is talking about the Hisses helped us move once. And Marbury says, tell us about that. Well, we, uh, Mr., Mr. Hiss and Mrs. Hiss and I got in their car, which was a four-seat car and our furniture was in the other half of the back seat and uh, something went, went in the trunk and that's how they moved us. And Marbury says, well, everything was in one seat of the car in the trunk and she said, well, yes, we had a chair that we put in the crib and that was in the other seat and then all of our clothes were in one suitcase in the trunk. And Marbury says, well, what about your, your silver, your crystal, your china pattern? And Mrs. Chambers says, Mr. Marbury, we were in the communist underground. We couldn't afford those things. And Marbury says to her, well, you didn't eat off the floor, did you? And I could just imagine Mr. Marbury saying to his wife that night over cocktails, you know, the very idea that a Harvard man should have to answer the accusations of a Jewish milkmaid. And Mrs. Chambers was Jewish, and she got up every, every morning and milked the cows by hand, and so did Chambers. I, I had a picture of him in a business suit and trousers with a crease and Oxford shoes milking the cows. Um, the great shock, I guess, was reading the great book on the case by Alan Weinstein that was published in the late 70s. Perjury? Perjury, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he had the benefit of Hiss's defense files a lot of time talking to Hiss and to Mrs. Hiss, and the benefit of the uh, forty or 50,000 pages from the Freedom of Information Act uh, papers. And if you read that book, The Case Against Hiss, it was pretty overwhelming at the trials, but it's just devastating. And what he found that really, what I think convinced him, that Hiss was guilty, was what he found in the Hiss defense files, that Marbury eventually concluded that Hiss was was guilty. And I think Edward McLean was leaning that way too.
0: What was your motive uh, for doing
1: the 38-part series on YouTube? I just wanted to have a record of my talk at the Smithsonian. Um, There are some people who would like to know about the case who aren't going to buy the Weinstein book and who would like to get something on video. I should add too. If the the thing that continues to interest me more and more is the relationship between the two men. Uh, You have two men who are physically quite different. Tiss was tall and handsome in a sort of a Brooks Brothers mannequin way, and always very well dressed. um, And Chambers was fat and ugly, and he apparently didn't bathe very often, and his mouth was rotting teeth when he was a, till he became prosperous at times, so you have the, the physical contrast. Everything we think we know about Hiss leads us to think that if he saw Chambers coming, he'd cross the street to avoid him. And then temperamentally, Hiss is this sort of calm, cool, and collected, on his deathbed he could probably tell you how many footnotes there were in his Harvard Law Review case comment, and Chambers is this guy who lurches from one extreme to another and is um, always looking for a simple answer to the big questions of life. Um, in search for the messy truth no matter what the cost uh and you wonder what would attract these guys to each other and what do they talk about it was a a a a true odd couple and this could make a great film noir it's uh, if you take out all the 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 politics it's about two different people who meet and something happens between them Mm -hmm. at the dawn of their professional lives and then they part and each goes a separate way and each becomes extremely successful in his career. And then 10 years later, they're working a few blocks from each other in midtown Manhattan, and the long arm of fate reaches out and drags them back together again and forces them to relive what they did 10 years ago.
0: When you see the
1: photograph of uh,
0: Alger Hiss sitting behind FDR at Yalta, Mm -hmm. uh, what comes to your mind, and did, did he do any harm by being a member of the Communist Party?
1: That's a good question. I I don't know that he did any harm to the national security. Chambers himself writes in his memoir that most diplomatic espionage, he said, is a magnificent waste of time. You could tell ninety percent of what some country is going to do in a negotiation just by looking at their past records and understanding their position in the, the world. Uh, and um, uh, I'm sorry, I, your, your question is... My question is how much oh, yeah. harm would he yeah. have done at, at,
0: say, like at Yalta yeah. and being around FDR when he well, was a State Well, maybe if
1: he knew our bargaining position on, say, Poland and Eastern Europe, and he could leak that to the Russians, they could know uh, how hard we would bargain for it. I, I wonder if, uh, as I think I say in the uh, videos and the podcasts, if... Um, if you think it's unimportant to know what your bargaining, what my bargaining position is, what somebody else's bargaining position is going to be, let's play poker tonight and I get to see your cards and you don't get to see mine, and when the sun comes up, let's see if you still think that that's trivial. Um, There is one thing that should be said. One of the handwritten documents, uh, what was government exhibit number one, is a short little telegram um, that uh, was sent by the U.S. Embassy in Moscow to the State Department in Washington about two, to just simplify things very quickly, um, was about two US citizens who had been members of the communist underground that Hiss knew, but pardon me, that Chambers knew, and uh, who had been summoned to Moscow for consultations and promptly vanished into the hands of the secret police, and this became a sort of international incident and the US government had to figure out how much we do about this. Um, is a telegram that went from the, our embassy in Moscow to the State Department saying here's what we found out about who these people are and it also says be strict and to me that means that implies the embassy is recommending to the State Department we should be very strict to the, to the Russians and say how dare you do this. Other people say what be strict means is follow the rule book strictly, don't do anything to help these people. And that is one of the four notes in Alger Hiss's handwriting. And so Algerhis was will and as the great journalist Murray Kempton wrote, this is the real Algerhis, Hiss, uh, stool pigeon for the cops. And not just any cops, but the secret police of the Soviet Union. And that and even if he didn't damage the national security very much, um, if at all, uh, this shows you the kind of thing that you get into when you start to spy for some other country especially for Stalin a book for you in this I don't see why nobody could be as good as the Weinstein book and your own career
0: Mm -hmm. you get out of Washington University Mm -hmm. you're a lawyer Mm -hmm. what did you do with your professional life
1: I went to work for AT&T in New York City for the first eleven or so years of my career. I worked for the, Bell, the, the old Ma Bell, working as an antitrust lawyer. And I also got involved um, because I was the youngest guy and the junior guy and the, the most trivial thing, which was this sort of car phone service called cellular wireless that was just coming off the drawing boards at Bell Labs. And I sort of rode that wave up and I went to, uh, I was briefly in Tehran for the foreign company of AT&T for about two weeks, writing a radio law that the Shah didn't have time to sign before he took his permanent vacation, and then I went to work for Bell of Pennsylvania for four years, and then became the vice president and general counsel of the Bell cellular company for this part of the country called Bell Atlantic Mobile Systems from 83, 84, 85, and 86. Um, and then I had a delayed sort of hippie phase and was an artist for about a year and actually made money at it. And uh, there was a rich old man in Mexico who thought I was Michelangelo. Uh, but I found it boring and came back to law practice, uh, joined some, was with several law firms here in Washington, um, and uh, became a partner at one and uh, did not like private practice because I'd, I'd gone through some changes in my personal life. and. Uh, began practicing a form of spiritual life that teaches that you should try and be humble. And um, humble is not a way to get clients if you're a partner in a K Street law firm. And so I was, and the Iron Curtain had come down. We're now about 1991 or 92. And everybody, we were the ones who were naive. We thought, oh, we'll go over to Moscow and give them a few lectures, and in five years it'll be like Arlington County. Um, and I thought I could, I, I, I can finally use my, my Russian in law. What could possibly go wrong? And I was about to go to move to Kazakhstan to be the local representative of the American Bar Association when I saw an ad in the paper saying the Federal Communications Commission is, is hiring antitrust lawyers. And they had the bad judgment to snap me up very quickly, and I spent the last 20 or so years of my career there uh, working on a lot of mergers of cable TV companies and bell companies and wireless companies. Um, the Internet came along at about that point and I'm very sort of proud to have been the there was a, a decision the commission reached that decided not to regulate the internet that was upheld by the Supreme Court and I, I wrote probably more of that than any other other person did. There were a whole lot of hands in it but I had a big hand in that. And when I, in, uh, I guess in the year 2012 I had enough money that I could retire so I decided to.
0: What's your feeling about it? I noticed that the average episode on YouTube is between two and 3,000 people have watched it. Mm-hmm.
1: Did that, is that what you expected? I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. Have you watched yourself? I haven't watched all of them, but I've watched most of them. And as I watched it, it's the
0: same thing. I mean, you're standing at the podium. And I'm trying to, as I'm watching and trying to listen, that's the hardest thing is to keep, you know, keep your mind on exactly what someone's saying over that length of time. Uh, there was only one time where something happened in the studio and there was a woman that walked in front of the camera. Yes,
1: we had the wrong chart up or something right, like that. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You
0: just decided to leave it in. Yeah,
1: yeah. We only had two days. Two days? Yeah. Did you read it? I read it from a transcript, which I'd practiced. I'd spent a week practicing it. The reason I read it from a transcript, and I did that very deliberately, probably at some cost to the uh, entertainment value, because this is a very complicated case. And I didn't want to say it was 57 documents it was, f- if it was actually 56 or 58. Um, and uh, so that's why I was reading from a transcript. Was it on a teleprompter? No, it was just in a ring, ring binder. Right in front of you? Yeah. Yeah.
0: They couldn't really tell that. Oh, actually. really? OK, no. good. good. Uh, <laughs> so did anybody coach you on how to do the performance itself? No. The main reason I'm asking all these questions is if the average person could see the value of being able to do a YouTube kind of a, mm-hmm. uh, a lecture series mm-hmm. like this and ha- how much effort would have to go into getting yeah. there. Uh, you say it cost you a couple thousand dollars. Yeah, and we—how did you get the idea of going to an access channel for a cable system?
1: Because they were nearby, and I had seen the access channel, and I figured, what's the harm in asking? And they were great, great people. Yeah. There was one funny moment when I was one—they there, there's a cut somewhere—stories of people in the industry. I was talking, and I realized that a fly had landed on my lapel and was walking slowly across my chest. And I kept on talking, figuring maybe no one will notice. And they said, we have to cut, cut. We have to do it all over again. And we had to wait half an hour to, to catch the fly, because we didn't want to have that happen again. And catching a fly in a big soundstage is a tough experience. And
0: What's the value to you of going through... I mean, and is there any way to calculate how many hours you've spent on Whitaker-Chamber's... No
1: way possible, no. Would
0: it be thousands? Probably, yeah, yeah. And what's the value to anybody that, that is listening to you talk about this, uh, for, for paying any attention to this
1: story? Yeah, I think it's a great story about human fallibility. I think it's a great film noir. I mean, these guys had their lives. They, they both, what they'd done long ago... Was when it came out in nineteen forty-eight, ruined both their lives. Chambers, when it came out that he was a spy, was let go by Time Magazine, which was the only decent and decently playing place that he'd ever worked. Um, it's a good object lesson in why you shouldn't commit treason, other than the fact it's wrong and it's a violation of the law. This will wreck your life, um, and um, it's a great story about uh, the the uh, t- t- to me um, the two men are sort of archetypes his is the face we like to see when we look in the mirror in the morning the tightly wrapped careerist with the perfect resume the man who's never done anything wrong and Chambers is the unquiet conscience that says no no we all do bad things sometimes really bad things in our lives and we have to face up to them that's the only way we're going to get better that's the only way society is going to get better and, this is, and there's this conflict that goes on, I know, in me, between what the world should be and what we know it is and what we'd like to be and what we actually are. You said that Whittaker Chambers died in the 61. When did Alger Hiss die? Alger Hiss died in the late 90s. He outlived Nixon by about 18 months. How long did he spend in prison? 44 months. He was sentenced to five years, which was the maximum for a first conviction for perjury, which is the crime he was charged with. And he got a few months off for good behavior. And what did he do when he came out of prison? He was so disgraced, he had to make a living for years uh, as a cold-calling salesman for a line of women's combs. Um, And he lived in a seedy one-room place near the Fulton Fish Market. And I grew up in Manhattan and walked all over Lower Manhattan as a kid in those years, this is in the late 50s and early 60s, and if you were near the Fulton fish market, the one constant was the smell of dead fish. And I cannot imagine the feelings of this proud man who'd been a confidant of Supreme Court justices and Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt and Harry Truman and Dean Acheson and John Foster Dulles, reduced to making cold calls on beauty parlors and pharmacies in the same years that his insignificant pursuer Richard Nixon became vice president and then president how much did this case uh... lead to Richard Nixon being president it made him famous uh... made him the most famous first term congressman in the country's history um, he said and i think correctly that this sort of punched his ticket with the party's right wing there were liberal republicans and very conservative ones and you have to get both to win And he said, because I was the guy who bagged Alger Hesse, nobody could challenge my anti-communist credentials, which was the big issue for conservatives back then. And that's what made it possible for me to be in favor of foreign aid and civil rights and budget deficits and all that stuff. So it made him famous at the age of 35. And without that, he couldn't have gotten to the Senate in 1950 at the age of 39 or so. And without that, he wouldn't have become vice president.
0: How many people still think that Alger Hiss was innocent or badly treated?
1: Uh, Innocent, among the people who have actually looked at the case, I I may be wrong on this, but I think it's down to one who was his son. Um, And as to Tony Piss? Yeah. Yeah. As to him being badly treated, um, that's a matter of judgment. Uh, whether he was guilty or not is a factual question, to which there's a correct answer. He has tried for years to say, well, I, w- I didn't get a fair trial, um, and uh, there's probably no complicated long trial in the 1940s that would pass muster by the standards we have today, because the rights of criminal defendants and the duties of prosecutors have uh, grown, grown up, g- gone up. I think by any rational standard, Hiss got a fair trial. He had 16 lawyers Including and got gray haired advice from future secretaries of state and past and future candidates for president and big name partners and major law firms. Uh, his lawyer at the first trial, Lloyd Paul Stryker, was just magnificent, who got four votes for not guilty on the jury. Um, he was tried in a, a and he, he was not some black guy going on trial for raping a white woman in a one newspaper town in Mississippi in 1949. He was the man who claimed to be the personification of the New Deal going on trial in New York City which was sort of the headquarters of the New Deal for God's sake and he had Eleanor Roosevelt writing sympathetic news- newspaper columns so um, I think by any rational standard he did get a fair trial.
0: And Whitaker Chambers died in 61 as we said earlier mm-hmm he wrote Witness in 52?
1: I think 50 and 51. He was at the end of the trials he had no job and a stack of legal bills and the the chattering classes turned on him and they just turned a cold shoulder to him and he eventually sat down to turn into money the only asset that he had left which was his life story and he wrote it without a literary agent or a publisher.
0: What was your reaction I believe Tell me if I'm wrong, 84, that Ronald Reagan gave Whitaker Chambers and posthumously the uh, Medal of Freedom. Yes. That Son was a- John came to pick it up. Yeah. Uh, the farm was made a national, uh, I don't know what you call it, the trust. Historic, historic landmark in 19... Yeah.
1: 19- What's your reaction to all that? Is that the right thing to do? I think it's long overdue, yes, yes, yes. He was a, a very great man, far, far from perfect, and he would be the first one to say that he was not perfect. This man spied for Stalin, after all. I mean, there were lots of people who were in the Communist Party who wised up after six months, and it took him more than a decade to wise up, maybe 10, 10 or so years. So. About to wrap up, has I-
0: anybody uh, been critical of you in this process?
1: Um, some, the only com- I haven't gotten any comments on the podcast, so there had been. I, I got one sort of unhinged comment from a lefty on the YouTube videos. It was just somebody who didn't know anything about the case at all, which I just sort of don't don't, don't bother at all. Sometimes there are far right people who criticize me for being too soft on Hess and too hard on Chambers. In fact, I had a. There was a fellow uh, who commented on the videos recently that. Uh, he, blamed, he criticized me for recording Hiss's increasingly leaden hints that Chambers was gay and said, you shouldn't repeat these vile lies. That's what they did to Clarence Thomas, and that's what they did to Justice Kavanaugh. It's all a lie. And I was waiting until he got to the video where I have Chambers' letter to the FBI telling them that he had had gay sex. And when the guy got to that video, he just said, I'm speechless. I'm totally flabbergasted. And in the next hour, he deleted all of the previous comments he had made. But, and I've gotten some some very nice comments from from, from people too. So John Barris
0: Ford, we better call it quits. Thank you oh, very much thank for you, uh, spending time with us. And those interested can find everything that you've done in the, with this story on YouTube. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you you can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.